This message was recorded live at Life Church Lancashire, a contemporary Christian church in the north of England. Learn more at lifelanks.org. Burnley. Is anybody with me today? I mean, that's, that's how you start a sermon, right? I find, you know, like when you play guitar, the temptation is just to do what guitar players call noodling, which means you just, you play what you already know. And it feels really comfortable. And you can do that for hours. But instead, what I did at the beginning is played something that I'm learning. I played something that a couple of months ago I couldn't play. And I thought, what I'll do is I'll sit down and I'll get the metronome out. And I've heard the song before and I'll, I'll figure it out and I'll play. And I'll make mistakes and I'll, I'll figure it out. And I'll go into the stretch because there's no growth in the noodling. The growth is in the stretch. Any guitar players here would know that. Any golfers who can hit a long, straight drive. But your short game's terrible. So what should you be doing? You should be heading, heading onto the putting green, but instead you go to the driving range because it makes you feel good. And you just watch those balls fly and people around you, oh, mate, how far can you hit it? And I think that we love to stay in comfort. We love to stay in what's easy. We love to stay in what we can do, but we're invited to change. And these practices are transforming if we move into the stretch, if we move into the growth. And when we hear messages and throughout this series, we've warned you. But still, I hear the same feedback every week. Every week I hear people say, oh, yeah, 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 I, I've been doing that. Oh, yeah, that's not really a problem for me. Oh, I, I'm, not really, I'm not as bad as that person. I'm not as bad as those people over there. And we spend most of our time justifying our behavior and comparing ourselves to others. What about instead of doing that, I said, hey, there's a lot of things on guitar that I'm really poor at. What if I practice those? What if instead of hitting those long drives, you went onto the putting green? What about if in our life, we stop comparing ourselves to others, and we stop justifying our behavior, and we actually moved into the stretch? We actually moved into the challenge, because in that place, we can grow. And in that place, we can be changed. So I want to invite you to take your notes out, to take your, 
your, your notepad, to take your phone out, to put it on airplane mode, to turn off those notifications because you're here anyway and you're going to be here for the next half an hour. So why not not only give your time but give your attention to actually move into the stretch and not spend this message thinking, well, I'm not as bad as those people. Or, well, there's a reason, there's an excuse, there's an explanation for what I do. But we actually hear the challenge of it. So start up those notes. And as you start up those as you start up those notes, we're going to talk about something today. When it, when, within our culture, it might be the most challenging, transforming practice. It might be the most stretch that we're going to have to move into in this whole series. Because this morning, in part six of our series of transforming practices, we're going to talk about simplicity. Simplicity. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12... Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Jesus says this to a group of poor people, a a group of people who are heavily taxed. The, The majority of audience would have been suffering under oppression. Meanwhile, today, the average American home has more than 300,000 items in it. Don't get too smug. We're not too far behind in the UK. The average 10-year-old in Britain owns 238 toys, but only plays with 12. The UK's got the largest storage industry in Europe with over 42 million square feet of stuff that we're not even using. But we better keep it there. We might need it someday. And Jesus goes on in Luke 12 to challenge the hoarding of resources, the anxiety of wealth and preoccupation with material goods. But consumerism is so embedded in our culture, it's difficult to challenge at an ideological level. It's difficult to take it on toe-to-toe, the ideas and the structure, because it's embedded into our daily lives. It's part of the taken-for-granted value assumptions. When we start to ask questions, everyone's like, but this is just the way things are. Because it's so embedded in our life. And when we try and critique it, what the market does is it absorbs and it trivializes our critiques. So powerful it is. See, we talk about simplicity and the market says, great idea, minimalism. If you just buy this five million pound luxury loft apartment with white walls and big open spaces. And in the middle, just put this 10,000 pound couch and you will achieve simplicity. Just buy this this beautiful candle. Look at it in in one clean color with a simple black and white label. Place that in the middle of its shelf and simplicity you have now achieved. You see, we try and challenge it and the market thinks, thanks, I'll use that. There's some more content that I can commodify. Anarchists call for revolution, overthrow the system. And the market says, that looked great on a t-shirt. Only $15.99. You see, consumerism is offered as the good news of our society, promoting individual happiness. Amazon have got billboards up in LA now, zero to happy in one hour. Because they're offering one-hour delivery throughout Los Angeles. I mean, they're not even pretending anymore. They're not even being subtle about it. It's not even the subtext. They're just telling you, zero to happy. This is where it comes from. This is how it works. 
But our pleasure isn't from what we get. But our pleasure comes from the continual, never satiated pursuit of transformation and transcendence through acquisition. We talk about transformation here, but our culture says, oh, we can do that. We can do that. Don't worry about these ancient practices. They're too difficult. Uh, They're too hard work. They involve too much of yourselves. We'll give you transformation. Transform your body in only 90 days. Transform your home. All you have to do is buy all this junk. And and we have this whole vision of transformation. But the thing is, we we buy into it. We think that's what's really going to change our lives. That's what's really going to make a difference. Just get the home right. Just get the garden right. Just get my body right. Just get my life right. Just get into the right position. But what we think we're purchasing turns out to be a fantasy. You see, we don't choose things for their utility, how things work. We choose them for their transcendent qualities. I mean, think about perfume. It's not advertised to make you smell better. I mean, look at this. What's this perfume going to do for you? It's not going to make you smell better. It's going to make you more confident, more desirable, more attractive. I, I did my own version of this advert. This perfume may make you smell slightly better for a short while, not guaranteed. Just be honest. You see, when we we get transformation from our culture, it promises transformation. You know what? It delivers it, but not the kind we're expecting. We think we're going to transform our life by transforming our home, by transforming our body, by the difference these products are going to make to us. But actually, what happens in this formation through repetition. Remember, there's no formation without repetition. And as we repeat day by day, the practices of the market, it does begin to change us. We're trained by formative habits, but what they do is they shape our imagination. And we start to become obsessed with this whole story, this promise, this desire, this continual pursuit. And it starts to make us anxious. And we find that it never really satisfies. But the promise keeps on being held out. I love this little video from Adbusters because it kind of makes explicit what in advertising is always implicit. Many people now, you see, we're waking up. And we're waking up to the the fact that, that this corrosive, perpetual dissatisfaction is hurting. It's eating away at our souls. And we're starting to wake up to the false promises of consumer culture. Here's a little story of a family in the States. I had two streams of discontent that were rolling through my life. I was always discontented with the use of my money. Always lived paycheck to paycheck to paycheck, just like 76% of Americans. Not a lot of consumer debt, but I always knew that we were just one emergency away from it. Like one broken water heater, one blown transmission, you know, one medical emergency, and we're going to be in debt. And I was just never contented with that. Additionally, I always wanted to be a generous person. Like I, like I wanted to help people with my money. I was working at a church where <laughs> you can't help but read, you know, most religious leaders and they'll say, hey, be generous and, and take care of people with less. And, and yet, I, you know, we were spending almost all of our money on ourselves. And I remember this realization that everything I owned wasn't not just bringing me happiness, but it was distracting me from the very thing that did bring me 
happiness, joy, purpose, fulfillment. Everything I owned, it wasn't just that it wasn't bringing me happiness, but that it was distracting me from what did bring happiness. You know, every time there's technological progress, it promises greater leisure time. A time-saving device. Oh, the technology coming in, the robots, you know, as far back as the wheel, it's going to save you time. And we think, great, let's have more time off. Let's have a three-day weekend. Let's have a four-day weekend. But what happens? What happens is that the market said, whoa, whoa, this is no good. People, people are saving time. People don't need to work so much. Societies can function without all this back-breaking labor day after day because of the progress of technology. We need more desire. So the market creates more desire, so we work more to buy things that we don't need. Things that generations before us never had or never dreamed of, but we feel that we don't want it, we need it. Because we've been told that we need it. And so that we carry on enslaving ourselves. You see, simplicity is freedom. It refuses to be a slave to anything but God. So what can we do when the market is so powerful? Well, I think we need to take a tactical approach. I think just, just shouting at the darkness, I think trying to take it on toe-to-toe, trying to take on the ideas is too big a structure. It's too big an edifice to shoot our arrows at. What we need to do is present a genuinely plausible alternative. You know, embodied holiness. What does that mean? It means that we show people what it looks like to live like God right here in a human body. And when we can show people an alternative, we can show people something different, it becomes a powerful example to the world. And that's what Jesus did. He talked about non-cooperation and non-idolatry. These can be powerful instruments of social reform. What did Jesus talk about more than any other social issue? Economics. More than anything. I mean, this is Jesus. This is a holy man. This is somebody sent from God. This is a religious teacher. What did he talk about more than anything else? Specifically, economics. And his overarching theme was the kingdom of God. And the most common application of what things look like in the kingdom of God? Got to change our economics. That's what Jesus talked about. That's what Jesus was concerned about. And we see this again, and we're going to go into Luke chapter 3. Because in the forerunner to Jesus, the prophet that went before him to make the way, it was a man called John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is preaching and baptizing people in Luke chapter 3. And it says this in verse 8. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Repent means to completely turn around and go in the other direction. To change your mind. To go 180 degrees. And if we're going to have real transformation, if we're going to go in the other direction to a sick and stupid culture, as a message Bible calls it, then we're going to have to repent. We're going to have to turn around. And what does John say? What does he give to people? Because people respond to him and they say this in verse uh, 10. What then should we do? What then should we do? What can we do in the face of this? And John's talking about repentance. So you're probably thinking, here we are. We've got a spiritual leader talking about spirituality. So he's going to say, you need to pray more. You need to be reading the scriptures. You need to be going to religious services. Uh, you need to be being engaging in, in spiritual activities on a, on a spiritual plane. We might think that's the kind of thing that John would say. What's the real important thing that we can do? If it's time to turn around, if this is the new era that Jesus is ushering in, what should we do? And this is what John says. He doesn't say pray. 
He doesn't say read the Bible more. He doesn't say go to church more. What does he say? He says in verse chapter, uh, verse 11, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. See, we live in a culture that gives minimally and consumes maximally. We consume in the West an unbelievable amount of stuff compared to anybody else on the planet and any other generation that has ever existed. It is staggeringly, mind-blowingly amount of stuff. But in a generation that gives minimally and consumes maximally, we need to transform our thinking. We need to turn that around so we can give maximally and consume minimally. Consume minimally. And give maximally. You know, it'd be very tempting to just uh, bring some sort of polemic, some sort of attack against greed. Uh, And that would be very caricature, and that would be very obvious, wouldn't it? Greed's bad, we're so greedy, uh, and where does that end up? It just ends up with this idea of pitting the material against the spiritual. It ends up with a place where we just say, okay, it's bad, let's have nothing. Let's be monks. Let's live under a rock somewhere naked. You know, or at least, you know, maybe, maybe what simplicity is about is, you know, we have to wear the same black clothes every day and, you know, live in a house with all white walls. Exactly, now you're getting it. No, no, wait a minute, that's just what I do. That's not what we have to do. You see, that, that might, we might think that's the logical conclusion, but you see, the spirituality that Jesus offers us is neither ascetic nor materialistic. Let me explain that. Lean in with me. You see, Jesus, he, he doesn't advocate this, div, this divorce between the material and the spiritual, that material things, real things we can touch and feel and experience are, are not important, and we need to float away onto a spiritual plane. Think about who our God is. Our God is the God who became human. Our God is the God who became flesh. Our God is the God who was born. There's something particular about Christianity. By Jesus' birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection, he affirms materiality. He affirms the importance of human life. He shows us that we can live a human life in the body, and he makes it possible for us to do so by what he achieved and by the sending of the Spirit. The material matters. In fact, what is our great hope? Is it for our soul to fly away onto a cloud? No. Our hope as Christians, is the resurrection of the body. This is, Christians can uniquely affirm the goodness of the material. Because Christians have a unique story about the God who became man and made provision for our resurrection. That's the unique story that Christians have to tell. So more than anybody else on the planet, Christians should celebrate beauty. Christians should celebrate the material. Christians should celebrate the value of every human person. Christians should celebrate design and art and music and aesthetics because we have a God who affirmed it at the very center of our story. So we're not ascetic, which means to just, you know, get rid of everything, live naked under a rock. No, no, no. It's not that. But at the same time, it's not materialism where we become a slave to stuff. And Jesus warned us against greed and what that does to us. He taught us a better way to live. Jesus, this isn't about punishing ourselves so we can have some sort of reward in the next life. Jesus didn't say that. He said, just like the man in the video understood, this stuff actually gets in the way 
of the good stuff. It actually gets in the way. Jesus is the teacher who says, there's one who comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I've come so that you might have abundant life. He's the teacher who says that, and he offers us that, and we're not finding it drowning in stuff. One more video. People have strange conceptions about money. When we don't have it, we often believe that money will make us happier. When we do have money, however, we tend to want more. The odd thing is that we all know, at least intellectually, that money won't buy happiness. But unfortunately, we've been steeped in a culture so heavily mediated that we've started believing the lies. The cars, the houses, the stuff, living the so-called American dream will make us happy. But of course, this is not true. The opposite, however, is also not true. A life of poverty, a life of perpetual deprivation isn't joyous either. You see, there's nothing inherently wrong with money, just as there's nothing inherently wrong with material possessions or working a nine-to-five. We all need some stuff, and we all have to pay the bills, right? It's just that when we put money and possessions first, we lose sight of our real priorities. We lose sight of life's purpose. And so maybe getting some of the excess stuff out of the way, clearing the clutter from our lives can help us all save money and make room for the most important things in life. Money helps accentuate these areas, sure, but the size of your wallet is much less important once your priorities are in line with your beliefs. We need to deaccumulate. We need to develop a habit of giving things away. You know, all the stuff we have has to be stored, has to be organized, has to be cleaned, has to be dusted, has to be moved. Over the course of our lifetime, we'll spend a total of 153 days searching for misplaced items. That's depressing. I mean, what if you could half that? What could you do in 75 days? What sort of contribution could you make to the world in 75 full days? Think about it. You could write an awesome book. You could write a great album. You could help a lot of people in 75 days. Think about it. The best way to organize your stuff, get rid of most of it. Do I still need this? When's the last time I used this? What would happen if I got rid of this? Could somebody else make better use of this? This doesn't sound very spiritual. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Have we forgot that Jesus talked about this more than anything else? Have we forgot when they asked John about the new era that was ushering in, what should we do? He said, well, if you've got two shirts, give one away. We forget that in 10 minutes, don't we? This is incredibly spiritual. But you see, we've got to realize that we're neither ascetic nor materialistic. There's a difference between clutter and details. See, clutter is all the stuff getting in the way. Details is the stuff that really adds value. Like, should you get rid of your Stradivarius? Well, listen, if it's an investment, then yeah, get rid of it. It should be played. But if you play it, if you're a professional violin player, then please don't get rid of your Stradivarius because we want to hear it because it's beautiful and incredible craft and detail and thought was put into that. And we love to hear what you can do with it. You see, God wants to transform us on the inside so that our behavior on the outside looks different. And all the transformers in practice transforming practices begin to change us and give us that peace within us that means we don't need to medicate with all this stuff but you know sometimes this practice itself 
can help get the thing on the inside. Sometimes we need to just start with this. We need to start with simplicity. We need to start with decluttering. We need to start with getting rid of stuff. We need to start with being intentional and pray as we do it, saying, God, help me not to be addicted to this stuff. God, help me not to be compelled by this stuff. Help me not to be enslaved by this stuff. God, that is why I give it away. Pray and clear out your wardrobe. What might happen? Be intentional about the things that bring into your life. I have a rule. Nothing crosses the threshold of our house unless we decide together and agree that we need it. There's an intention. Because let me tell you, once that stuff gets in the door, it's flipping hard to get rid of. Be intentional about what you bring into your life. Learn to enjoy things without owning them. This beautiful guitar amp I played before, it's not mine. My friend Peter kindly lent it to me. And you know what? It's enjoyable. I love to play it. But I don't have to, I've got to have it. I've got to get one. Hand-wired boutique made in the US. I've got to order it. How much is it shipping? I can just play it and enjoy it. I don't need to have it. Share things. Use the beach, the park, the library without thinking, I need to buy a beachfront property. Just enjoy it. Share. You know, I'm just amazed at how little we've had to to buy and fork out for for our son. Why? Because we're sharing. Today he's wearing clothes that were bought for him or were passed on to him. And he does pretty much every day. I love that. We can share. We can do things together. Because we've got to think about how we live. Because the earth can't afford our lifestyle. And we can't extend to our friends in the majority world our lifestyle in the West. Things are getting serious, and we have to change. The second group of people in John, as we run through these three quickly, are tax collectors. It says in verse 12 that even tax collectors came to be baptized. If you believe that, you believe anything, right? And teacher, they asked, what should we do? And in verse 13, John says, don't collect any more than you're required to. You know, we live in a culture which feeds our desire and starves our contentment. And we need to transform that. We need to turn that around and starve desire and feed contentment. See what it says in the New Testament. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, it says that godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Because those who want to get rich fall into a trap at a temptation. Into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves through with many griefs. Contentment is not good for business. So the market works to erode it. And it invites us in. And it teaches us this constant, never satiated desire. But you know, when we hear about the love of money again in Hebrews chapter 13, we see a key. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because, are you watching it? God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. It's not the constant desire, but the presence of God that is really going to make the difference. Where we're really going to find contentment. Paul says a similar thing in Philippians chapter 4. That's the secret he's found. That when he's learned to be content in every situation, it says in the next verse that I can do all things through him who gives me strength. I've heard prosperity teachers use that verse on its own. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Therefore, bigger building, more cars, more money, more jets. Hang on a minute. 
what's Paul talking about? He's saying what I can do is be content when I've got nothing. That's what the presence of God can do for us. Refuse to be propagandized. It's not going to make your life easier. It's not going to make your life better. It's not going to make you more attractive. Instead, foster contentment. Practice thankfulness. Experience things outside the bounds of the market. Go out and don't even take your wallet. I mean, what's the worst that could happen? Why don't you do that for an hour? Why don't you do that for a day a week? Why don't we start to develop a deeper appreciation for creation? The final thing that John says here is, in verse 14, his final response, says some soldiers, occupying enemy soldiers, came to him and asked him, what should we do? And he said, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content, there's contentment again, with your pay. You know, we live in a culture that loves things and uses people. And we love things so much that we use people to get ahead, to get that promotion, to get that thing that we want. We use people in other parts of the world to work with cheap labor so that we can have disposable rubbish and throw it away when we're bored with it. But God is calling us to love people and use things. You see, the primary issue isn't things. It isn't the material goods themselves, but it's our ego. It's our desire to control others like the soldiers and the tax collectors were challenged. It's the fact that our worth is coming from the stuff that we have. It's the fact that our identity is based on our lifestyle. Our status comes not from being part of a community, but by means of an image that we curate carefully online and in our appearance. And that image gives us status. In our culture, personality is more important than character. But having more doesn't mean being more. We have to learn to find our worth in God. Buy things for their usefulness, not their apparent status. In a culture where changing your image is as easy as buying a new car. We've got to watch that we don't give in to the excesses of our culture. Because we might think we're so attached to things, but actually the problem is we're detached. We don't really care about things. They're disposable. They don't matter to us. Goods appear on shelves like they've been dropped from aliens. You know, if you ask a kid, you know, you know, where do potatoes come from? You know, the supermarket. And we have that same detachment, though, when we see this magical thing in a box. Who made it? Where did it come from? What materials were used? Where were they extracted from? What factories is this produced in? Where is it shipped? Do we do this? Do we look into this when we buy things? Do we consider things? Have you ever tried making anything? It's flipping hard, isn't it? You ever try making music? You go to a gig, you're like, this is flipping easy. Then you try and make music, and you're like, oh, it's actually quite, it's quite difficult. You, 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 you know, but, but we're, we're happy to just, you know, listen to music illegally for free. You know, what, what, ever tried making a film? Ever tried making a telephone? Ever tried making a computer? Ever tried making a blanket? It's hard work. It is for me anyway. When we make things, we remember how difficult it is. We remember that somebody makes everything that we enjoy. We've got to learn to reject these impulses, these addictions. Watch out. What is producing an addiction in you? I'll tell you how you know. You have a compulsion. You have that compulsion. You have that urge. Have you got an urge to check social media rather than checking it at the times of the day when you have decided that you will check it? Well, that's called an addiction. 
It's the same as somebody who needs a drink or a drug. You've got an addiction to buy something, make you feel better. You've you got an addiction to, to, to want something, to look on things, to be, to be cruising online, shopping, just window shopping. We've got an addiction to drinks that aren't nutritious, like alcohol and caffeine. Is your hobby an addiction? You've got a thousand flies. You don't need any more for your fishing, but you still buy more because you're compelled. It's an addiction. In consumer culture, you see, pleasure isn't simply a right or a privilege. It's an obligation to yourself. But let me invite you to do something. Don't buy now and pay later. It's only going to deepen your bondage. Instead, pay now and buy later. I invite every one of us to pay now and buy later. It's called saving. You pay now, you put the money away, and you decide to buy something at a later time. You move slower. You know, say you're saving 500 pounds to buy something. You can just buy that today and put it on credit and be paying the interest payments and be bored with the thing pretty soon. Or you can save that 500 pounds. And when you get to the point where you buy it, you might still choose to buy it. You might be intentional about it. You might believe that it adds value to your life and your family. You might decide not to. Guess what? You've got 500 pounds. Instead of paying 600 pounds for something you didn't really want. But pay now, buy later. Delay purchases. Talking to your husband or wife. You know, we really want to do that. Let's wait a month. See how we feel then. Let's wait a year. Let's see how we feel then. Let's wait two years. Turn to the one, just as a band come and join me, who can truly satisfy our desires. You see, only in this story that God invites us into can we really find purpose and meaning and joy. So it's time to simplify. You see, Christian simplicity eschews the tyranny of worry and the anxiety of wealth, trusting instead in God's provision. It refuses to participate in predatory economic systems which oppress the poor and ravage the environment. It allows us to discover purpose, meaning, and identity in the ultimate and live, therefore, as truly free people. No longer slaves to the compulsions engendered by consumer culture. It's not simply about depriving yourself, but choosing to live more intentionally with love, care, and appreciation. If you've got that nice car, you know, drive it and enjoy it. If you've got that Stradivarius, play it so we can all enjoy it. But don't put yourself into bondage. Simplify. You see, in consumerism, the cross is just another corporate logo. But for Christians, the cross is a call to cruciform discipleship. It's a call to follow Jesus. And sometimes when we're out of step with our neighbors, just like we will be when they're captive to the consumer mindset, we'll have to carry our own cross. Like Jesus, you might end up on one. That's the message of Christianity. Happy Sunday. But it's true. But the the reality is, on the other side of the cross, is a resurrection life. And what God has for us is so much better than these promises that are offered out to us. We've ended up in a place in the West where I don't think any of us ever imagined. And we can say no. And we can start with a small little thing. Might not seem a big deal. Might say, you know what? After this, we were going to drive to the big box furniture store and 
get that sofa and put it on credit for the next three years. Let's just go home and have lunch and talk about it. You know, it starts with things like that. You should go to spacious place furnishings anyway. But you see, let's just all stand as we finish. I came out with an electric guitar strung around my neck because, you know, the biggest barrier to, predictab- to communication is predictability. So far out, our pastor comes out with an electric guitar. And I want you to remember that image. I want you to remember, every one of us, that growth is in the stretch. So let's not compare ourselves to, well, yeah, 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 but so-and-so's got three cars. Well, yeah, yeah, I cycle when I can. Well, well yeah, 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 but, I, you know, I recycle. Yeah, let, let's not compare ourselves to others. You know, and let's not justify our behavior. Well, I needed that because of X and Y and Z. Let's not do that. Let's just say there's something here between us and God. And perhaps our very closest friends can discuss it with us. But don't let someone else give you a standard. Don't let someone else say, oh, nice car, they must be paying you too much. Just, just push it back. Don't take that on. Don't, don't listen to that. It's not for someone else to set the standard for what you drive and where you live and what you wear. It's not for someone else to do that. But it is for all of us to give an account to God. So let's be humble before God and say, God, where's the stretch for me? And God, I don't want to justify and I don't want to compare myself. I want to just say humbly before you, it's not what Matt says on the microphone. It's not what that other person says to me. It's not what somebody else is doing. God, I want to live with integrity and I want to live with intention. So humbly, God, point out in me where there's a stretch and I need to move into that simplicity. So what could you do this month, this week, or maybe even this evening? Discover more about us at lifelinks.org and stay inspired by subscribing to the podcast via iTunes. Thanks for listening.